Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amber Nickel, the host of the channel, and today we are going to be talking with Maxime Goldenstein about his recent publication, So They Remember, A Jewish Family Story of Surviving the Holocaust in Soviet Ukraine, which came out this year on University of Oklahoma Press. Maxime studied journalism at the University of Washington, and in addition to penning this text, which is amazing, by the way, he has also written for several regional newspapers, including the Seattle Times. Maxime, welcome to the channel. I'm excited to discuss this text with you today. Yeah, looking forward to speaking with you. So let's dive right in. In your introduction, you walk readers through your motivations for writing this book and some of the obstacles that you faced along the way. Will you share this with listeners today? You know, absolutely. And I should start um, by saying that I really learned about my family's history, you know, largely by accident about a decade ago uh, when I was uh, 23 or so. Uh, you know, and growing up as a kid living in the suburbs of Seattle, I, I had only kind of heard fragments here and there, uh, mostly from uh, my maternal uh, grandmother, Anna. Uh, but I didn't really know to, I think, make the connections between the events and memories she shared with me and the Holocaust. She certainly di- didn't really describe um, her stories in those terms. And, and and really, you know, broadly speaking, as an immigrant family, I, you know, I remember growing up, you know, there wasn't much of a focus, um, I think, on, on looking you know, to the past, you know, we were very focused on learning English, acculturation, uh, you know, for my parents, you know, I'm sure it was just really, you know, about making ends meet. Um, you know, so I, I don't think it was really until, again, my, my early 20s that I that I began to even wonder about my, my family history. Um, and so it was in spring of 2012, basically a decade ago, uh, that my mom, uh, Svetlana, mentioned something to me over breakfast when I was visiting her and my dad. And uh, she mentioned that her father, my maternal grandfather, Motul, um, had, had saved people during the Second World War. And I, I didn't really, um, I don't really, even really remember the context. Uh, it was just kind of a random uh, comment, really. Uh, and it got me thinking um, because, uh, yeah, it was, it was just, a, just a startling kind of comment. And so, you know, by this point, I was visiting my grandparents, you know, pretty much every other week anyway. So I figured... Uh, you know, why not uh, the next visit, uh, you know, bring my notebook and, and pen with me? Uh, you know, I, I had by this point written for some regional newspapers and had journalism experience. So it was kind of second nature to to want to at least record what they were saying and, and to preserve it, uh, you know, just in case, you know, five or 10 years down the line, I would you know regret not having done so. Um, and so initially, um, I asked, um, you know, my grandfather, uh, you know, about what had happened uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, it, it, I actually ended up speaking to him, not just on one weekend, but over, you know, a few weekends. And, you know, as he spoke, increasingly, my, my uh, maternal grandmother, Anna, also chimed in. And then I realized she, too, had an incredible story to tell. Um, and, you know, overall, what I was hearing in the spring of 2012 um, was, was really incongruent, I think, with the popular image of the Holocaust in books and movies 
mostly in my experience, the ones I'd encountered were about the experiences of uh, Western and Central European Jews during the war, you know, who spoke Western and Central European languages, who led very different lives before the war than than uh, my own family, as I would find out. And uh, but more importantly, until now, I had no idea that my own family could have been, you know, subjected to to the same horrors. Uh, I didn't know anything about Romania's role in the Holocaust, or even that uh, it had actually occupied uh, a part of Ukraine during the war. Uh, so so. You know, when I really, st- I, I did really start to write um, in early 2012, I, I started to research, but uh, nothing really came of it. I, I was quite frankly, really intimidated by the sheer amount of history involved. Um, and and certainly, uh, I, I basically delayed it as long as possible until finally, I, I kind of convinced myself that the, the task was, was too large for me. Um, but it really, as the years passed, I, I couldn't really stop thinking about the stories I'd heard, um, I, I was continuing to sort of read in my spare time. And as I was doing this, you know, I, I was struck by the fact that, uh, you know, the story of Eastern European Jews, at least from my perspective, wasn't often represented in, in um, Holocaust literature, at least in the English language. And, um, you know, I was struck by the fact that, uh, you know, for the folks who did experience it and who generally left Western Europe after surviving the Holocaust, you know, they generally described, you know, Europe and Eastern Europe as places where, you know, Jewish communities were completely erased or destroyed uh, or that they had vanished, uh, you know, to use kind of some popular titles uh, that have been written on the topic. And so I, I realized that over time that this actually didn't really fit the narrative of what happened to my family. You know, my, my family managed to survive the war and, and returned uh, to the same towns where they had lived before. And in, in for a variety of reasons that maybe we'll get to, this was a part of Ukraine where uh, there were um, parts of communities that, that managed to uh, to um, continue to uh, exist after the war. Um, and then even even when I explored the scholarship on the Holocaust in Romania specifically, uh, I realized that a lot of the foundational works were really focused on the experiences of, of Romanian Jews who were deported to this kind of territory of, of Ukraine called Transnistria that we'll probably talk about later. Um, and, and and most of the scholarship actually comes from probably people with a Romanian background or, or um, Romanian Jews who maybe moved to Israel. Um, and so again, the, the story of, of the, the local Jews, the, the, the Soviet-born Jews in Ukraine, is sometimes kind of left to the margins. And so I, I was struck by the fact that uh, there was a bit of a gap possibly to be filled. Um, and the other thing I, I would just say lastly is that... Um, you know, uh, you know, while you know excavating, you know, family history over the past decade, you know, I, I found some interesting kind of tidbits about, you know, who my family was, you know, dating as far back as the 19th century, and I realized that you know the story I wanted to write wasn't just about the Holocaust, and, and this took me a while to to truly grasp. Um, but it, the story I wanted to write was also just about an ordinary Jewish family across the, you know the arc of the the 20th century, a time of radical change, you know, violence, emigration. Uh, perseverance. And I think it was this understanding, this holistic picture um, that, you know, has helped me really understand my own Jewish identity uh, as a Soviet-born Jew uh, in the United States. So before we discuss their Holocaust experiences, would you mind sharing with us a little bit more about Moto and Anna as you know them? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I so I was born in the city of uh, Chernivtsi, in the southwest of Ukraine uh, in 1988, and um, I was uh, basically just shy of my fourth birthday 
1992 when, um, when I remember being told that we were going to move to the U.S. And, you know, some of my earliest memories of this time, uh, in some of those memories, my grandparents are, are basically ever present. And, and that's because, you know, they lived with my parents, my sister and I, and they continued to do so basically for the first eight or nine years of my life, first in Ukraine and then during our first couple of years in the U.S. Culturally, um, you know, it was quite normal for three, sometimes four generations even to live under one roof. Uh, and and th- that was really um, to my benefit from from growing up. They they were they really in a way helped helped raise me when my parents were at work or um, when they were off uh, at college uh, learning English and, and taking the classes they would need to uh, to help us uh, eventually get on our feet. So um, you know for that to have them around, I always felt like I I kind of had a protective cloak over me. You know they were they were my biggest cheerleaders. Um, they. They, I think they would probably describe themselves as, as providers. They, they would do anything necessary to, uh, to help their, their kids, their, grand, their, grandkid, their grandkids thrive. And so um, that's, that's, probably, um, that's probably how I know them best. You know, it's surprising that you said earlier on that you were kind of found the history aspect of this daunting. Because one of the things that really stands out in your text is your ability to weave historical contexts and developments, particularly regarding the Holocaust in Romanian occupied territory and your own family story. For curious listeners, can you tell us a little bit more about how the Holocaust in Romanian occupied territory and German occupied territory differed? Yeah, well, um, I should probably you know set the scene just a little bit as it relates to the Holocaust in Ukraine and um, the particular strip of land that Romania uh, would come to control in Ukraine, in the southwest of Ukraine. Uh, this, this territory was called Transnistria. And importantly, um, it, it does not actually relate to the Transnistria of today, which is the, the breakaway region of Moldova that unfortunately um, has been in the news the past you know, several weeks. Um, the, the Transnistria of World War II was a territory um, in occupied Ukraine that the Germans essentially in uh, August of 1941 handed over to their Romanian allies uh, to occupy and exploit uh, essentially as a thank you for their enormous contributions on the on the Eastern Front. Um, and as a result, interestingly, you know, Transnistria became the only sizable territory, you know, with a sizable population in the Soviet Union that was occupied um, by a country other than Germany. So it's it's pretty interesting and unique. Uh, in that sense alone. Um, and basically, by the time that the Romanians took over Transnistria from the Germans uh, in the late summer of 41, uh, there were about 200,000 Soviet Jews still remaining on the territory, most of them in Odessa and kind of the southern part of Transnistria. But there were, um, I think, about 35,000 in the smaller towns of, of the northern part of Transnistria where my, my grandparents were born. Um, and, you know, there are, I think, a variety of differences um, between what happened in Romanian-controlled territory in Ukraine and, and German-controlled territory. But I think um, it's, it's worth pointing out that uh, for, uh, you know, Ion Antonescu, the Romanian dictator, um, the, the plan uh, initially uh, was, was not to in any way uh, keep, keep the, the, the Jews that, that had been deported there um, uh, for any period of time, really, it was it was essentially as the war allowed to to deport them even further east and to hand them off to the Germans uh, to do what they will, which is probably to to murder them. Um, but what happened was that military uh, 
progress didn't go according to plan and, and the Germans wouldn't accept them. And so what happens is that in, this, in these territories, the Romanians were forced to essentially create a constellation of between 150 and 200 temporary ghettos and camps uh, where um, the Romanian Jews and, and local Soviet-born Jews essentially languished um, for two and a half to three years. And it was really, it became this prolonged humanitarian disaster that really took on apocalyptic uh, proportions. Um, and this, and this, uh, this lasted, again, between the, the summer of 1941 and 1944. Um, and I think it's also worth mentioning at this point that by the end of the war, as a result of uh, what happened in Transnistria and what the Romanians did in uh, Bessarabia and northern Bukovina, these two territories that um, it had reconquered from the Soviets, uh, they, they were responsible for, for the deaths of between 280,000 and 400,000 Jewish victims. Uh, on top of uh, maybe twelve or thirteen thousand uh, Roma people, uh, and so and so that gives them the distinction of being the only country other than Germany to really initiate its own program of uh, mass killing on such a large scale. You know, what's again, what's what's striking about um, the Holocaust in Romania, which also includes uh, you know this this chunk of territory in, in uh, occupied Soviet Ukraine is that the Romanian army and military police uh, during their military campaign uh, beginning in June and July of 41 uh, start to kill entire families right away, whereas the German policy in Ukraine and, and throughout the Soviet Union it doesn't really uh, emerge until late July and August of 1941, which, which until then they had only been uh, killing select men. Um, and so th this is particularly barbaric uh, in Bessarabia, for example, which um, which was uh, immediately east of Romania. It, the violence is carried out against Jewish civilians there was particularly horrific. Uh, bodies were often left on the street. There was widespread um, sexual violence and looting. And the behavior actually drew the ire of the German army and security forces. Uh, who repeatedly complained about this conduct in letters, not not necessarily because they objected, uh, but it, basically in the manner in which this was done, um, you know. But to speak more more broadly about um, Transnistria uh, and the specific camps and ghettos that were set up there, uh, you know, these were the camps in particular were largely improvised, uh, which which probably differs from the popular image of of the German camps. In other words, they were they even the concentration sites were not meant to sustain life for any real duration. Uh, there were no barracks or latrines. Uh, prisoners received no clothing. Uh, the camps often consisted of stables, pigsties, uh, collective farms, you know, abandoned or destroyed houses, former Red Army facilities. Um, and again, in contrast to you know the, the Nazi camp network that maybe we like to think of, there was no cohesive system that linked you know, maybe even one camp to the other. There was a lack of uniformity in how they worked. It, things could completely differ between two neighboring camps. Uh, you know, for example, the one that my grandfather was sent to called Pichera uh, completely differed from uh, a neighboring camp called Vapniarka. Uh, in Pichera, there was no food provided and people were essentially left to, to starve or succumb to disease, uh, to, to the, the bitter cold. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, in, in Vapniarka, which had been a, a former Red Army um, cavalry base, the prisoners were, were fed this kind of uh, poisonous um, uh, grass pea fodder, which which uh, was known to cause paralysis, and so um, 
again, very, very, very different approaches. And, and, and often they were uh, conducted in a very improvised manner. And, and speaking to the ghettos that dotted Transnistria, uh, you know, these were often very porous. Uh, sometimes they had barbed wire and other places uh, there was no bar- barbed wire at all because they were, these, these ghettos were established in existing Jewish residential areas. And so it would have been obvious to everyone where the boundaries should exist. You know, some were quite large with as many as you know, thousands of people, while others held maybe a few dozen people. Um, and, and in general, in speaking to you know, the Holocaust in the Soviet Union and, and certainly the Holocaust in Romanian-occupied Ukraine, this was a very public um, series of events. You know, most, most, in most of the ghettos and camps, they operated in, in plain sight within, uh, within towns and villages. So uh, it, it, everything that went on was, was certainly visible to um, the non-Jewish neighbors that lived nearby, certainly within, uh, within earshot. One other thing that was quite different in the Romanian-occupied territory of Ukraine was the attitude of the locals. Um, I think some of the best-known works about the Holocaust in Ukraine uh, take place in, in the western uh, part of uh, the country as we know it today. And this was a territory that had been uh, under Soviet rule only for a couple of years, since 1939. And uh, the attitudes in general looked quite different from what, what happened in, in, uh, to the east uh, in, in the south of Ukraine and the southwest of Ukraine. Um, and as a result, um, you know, there are many theories about you know, why things look the way they did. But um, essentially, many locals uh, in, this, in this part of Ukraine actually came to the aid of, um, of, of Jewish prisoners in the camps and ghettos and actually helped them survive. And, and there's a variety of, again, theories as to why this was. Um, but uh, many people believe it has a lot to do with the fact that anti-Semitism was uh, uh, basically outlawed uh, as soon as the Soviet Union was formed, that there were a variety of programs to integrate um, Soviet Jews in society to uh, help counter some of the stereotypes that went on and, and to help promote positive images of Jews. Um, so there's a lot still to be learned there. Um, and I think another interesting thing is that despite the, the really horrific nature uh, at, the, at the start of the war and the horrific conditions in, in the camps and ghettos uh, at the beginning of the Romanian campaign, this was actually a place where, again, there was a slight chance of survival because the course of the war uh, took a drastic turn uh, in the fall of uh, 1942, and the Romanians moderated their policy, whereas in German-controlled Ukraine, um, they, they continued until uh, much of the population that remained uh, was, was wiped out. Um, and, and then lastly, I think when we think about the Holocaust in Ukraine, I think that the term Holocaust by bullets uh, inevitably comes to mind for certain people. And that's certainly true in Transnistria, because there were quite notable instances in which um, people were killed in mass shootings. And this happened primarily in Odessa and in, the, in southern Transnistria. Uh, but in the towns to the north, where there was this enormous constellation of ghettos and some camps, this was actually exceedingly rare. Um, and, and most people didn't experience this. Uh, uh, people were instead really left to, again, languish in these improvised camps and ghettos. Um, and they, they, they suffered disease, starvation, um, extreme cold. Uh, this was one of the coldest winters of the 20th century, uh, etc. So it was very difficult to survive, but, but certainly more possible. And there were fewer active measures. Um, so, so there are quite a few differences, I would say.
So kind of moving away from this crucial historic context uh, into your own family story, can you briefly sketch the outlines of Molten Anna's experiences in Romanian occupied Ukraine? Yeah. Well, uh, both of my maternal grandparents, Motul and Anna, were born in small towns uh, in what, what was then known and what is still known now as uh, Vinitsa province, which is in the southwest of Ukraine. Uh, my grandfather was born in uh, the town of Tulchin uh, in 1929, which, which was in many ways kind of a typical market town. And just before the war, uh, there were something like 5,600 Jews living there, although many would... Uh, uh, be, be uh, um, drafted into the Red Army or, or try to uh, escape um, the, the German occupation. And so there were about 3,000 left um, at, at the time of, of the German occupation in, uh, in um, July of 1942. Um, my grandfather was 12 when this happened. His older sister, Mani, was 14. And they had a five-year-old sister and a two-year-old brother, and their parents lived with them. And um, it took about, again, kind of a month or so uh, for the Germans first to arrive. And they encountered a town of mostly children, women, and the elderly. Um, again, for some of the reasons that I mentioned. Um, and most people could not escape because there was no train station and there was no effort on the part of local authorities to in any way uh, create any kind of organized evacuation. And uh, within a couple of months, um, Tulchin is essentially incorporated into Transnistria and becomes occupied by Romanians. And then there's a decree uh, in the fall uh, which forces everyone to relocate to within the confines of a few streets in what had been the former uh, Jewish quarter, and this becomes um, the Tulchin ghetto. And not surprisingly, uh, typhus epidemics uh, became widespread in places like Tulchin, which, which it often does in places where people live in cramped quarters, where it's difficult to find changes of clothes, um, where um, hygiene practices aren't really possible. So an epidemic of typhus began in the Tulchin ghetto too. And, um, you know, this really panicked the, uh, the Romanian gendarmes, the, the um, military police that were uh, left in the rear. Uh, because they were worried that it would spread to their own men. Uh, they, they were worried that it would affect the supply lines. And so uh, beginning that fall and winter, there is a, um, a, a massive relocation of the Jews of Tulchin, around 3,000, to uh, a newly created death camp about 35 kilometers away. Um, and this was, um, you know, for lack of a better word, to, to essentially quarantine them. Um, and so in December of 1941 begins the process of the deportation. They are first forced onto the streets and then um, forced into a nearby school where, without food and water where they stay for a couple of days. And then three days after that, they're forced on a, a long, um, quite horrific march uh, to the village of Pichera, uh, which, which became the setting uh, for the, the death camp that um, my grandfather uh, was sent to. Uh, you know, before the war, the the, the village had been um, the, the the site of a sprawling estate owned by a. a, a um, I, I, sorry, I should say before the Russian Revolution, uh, the the village had been the setting for a sprawling estate owned by a prominent uh, Polish noble family, and then after after the revolution, in some years past, it became uh, actually repurposed for a Soviet tuberculosis sanitarium, and so these are the grounds. Where, uh, where the hospital uh, was established. And again, um, this was a place where Jews were essentially left uh, 
without food, water, uh, without sanitation, without medicine, uh, with eventually uh, the Romanians aimed to deport them further east into German hands. But that, um, of course, uh, did not happen because um, the effort, the, the war took a decisive turn. Um, and my, for my grandmother, Anna, the story was similar, uh, except that uh, she was born in a, a town called uh, Krasnaya, um, not far from Tulci and also kind of in the northern reaches of what would be called Transnistria. And uh, she was uh, just about four when the German occupation and subsequently Romanian occupation began. And uh, she, she lived with her, um, with her older sister and mother and some relatives uh, in a ghetto that was established in the town. Eventually, they were relocated into another ghetto. Uh, and uh, for her, one of the, um, I think, defining um, uh, the tragedies of the war, in addition to what happened to her family it, 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 that was in the ghetto, was the fact that her father was killed uh, while um, in the Red Army. And this was a, quite a common uh, experience for a lot of people in the Soviet Union. I think another thing that really this narrative that you expertly weave highlights is the ways in which developments on the Eastern Front affected day-to-day life and instances of survival in the camps and ghettos of Transnistria. Can you share with us a little bit about how these developments affected outcomes? Absolutely. well, the, the first winter in 1941 and 1942 uh, was especially brutal. Uh, many tens of thousands of people uh, died due to um, some of the factors I mentioned earlier. Uh, and there, again, is particularly in the southern territories, uh, a variety of mass shootings that decimated the population, uh, the Jewish populations interned in some of these areas. Um, but what happens is that uh, even before... Um, the Romanians and Germans uh, suffer setbacks at Stalingrad. Uh, the Romanians, um, led by wartime dictator uh, Antonescu, they sense that uh, the tides of war are, uh, are changing and that there is a good chance that they may not win. So their policy uh, begins to moderate. Uh, and uh, for many of the, the Jewish prisoners in the camps and ghettos, there is now a sense that uh, it uh, if, if they can, you know, perhaps uh, survive for another year or two, they, they can out, outlast uh, the war. Uh, for my grandfather, uh, he, um, again, was imprisoned in, in a, a camp called Pichera in the Pichera village. And there was a very unique situation there in that the camp was surrounded by stone walls, but uh, it was quite possible for, for children uh, his age to, to scale them. They were six, seven, eight feet high. And often this is what they did to essentially uh, show up on the doorsteps of villagers in Pichera and some of the outlying villages to beg for food. And then they would sneak back into the camp, uh, evading some of the local Ukrainian policemen uh, and and to bring food back to their families to to help sustain them. Soon these children began to sense that there was less danger on the outside, that there were fewer uh, gendarmes um, patrolling it seemed that even when they were caught by the gendarmes, the Romanian uh, military policemen, that they would be kind of released and not really even severely punished. So they eventually made it further and further uh, and and reached uh, ghettos that um, actually they perceived as as safer than the very camp that they were uh, imprisoned in. So over time, especially in the spring of 1943, in the last year um, of, of, uh, of the Romanian occupation, many prisoners in, um, in Pichera actually begin to, those who have survived, 
begin to slowly make their way to uh, nearby ghettos. And, and this is where they spend the final uh, year of the war until their liberation by the Red Army. As you pointed out earlier in our discussion, you really are weaving a story of a family that straddled the 20th century. So your book goes beyond the Holocaust. One of the things that really stands out to me in reading is the way that memory factors in to this larger story. Like many Soviet Jews, your family had to grapple with the silences concerning Jewish experiences of the Holocaust and the difficulties of rebuilding in post-war Soviet Ukraine. What did this look like for them? Well, in March of uh, 1944, when the Red Army showed up and and liberated Transnistria, uh, there were about 20,000 of the 200,000 or so Soviet Jews still uh, left alive. Uh, in this territory, and uh, about 50,000 of the 150,000 or so uh, Romanian Jews that had survived Transnistria. Uh, For the Romanian Jews, often the story was that they uh, eventually um, managed to return to Romania, and uh, over the next couple of decades, um, many of them emigrated to Israel. For the local Soviet Jews, um, their story was very much about returning to the hometowns from which uh, they had had been uh, taken, uh, and basically to to somehow rebuild their lives. Um, in in the case of my grandfather, he returned uh, by foot with his with his mother, his, uh, um, his three siblings who had all survived, and he, he found that the old Jewish quarter in Tulchin was uh, pretty much decimated. M- many of the homes were taken apart. The Jewish homes were taken apart for firewood. Uh, they were uh, stripped down to the foundations. The all of their Household items had essentially been um, been taken uh, by the locals, uh, and so there was no there was no place to turn. And so the immediate task to tend to was to continue to find a way to survive. Uh, they, my grandfather, uh, essentially found an uh, an abandoned shack, uh, tore off the lock, and welcomed his family inside. And that's that's where they would live for the next basically twenty years because there was a severe housing shortage, and it took a long time for the the Soviets to be able to provide housing. Um, and, um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, rebuilding, that wasn't even, um, you know, that was just the beginning of the, uh, right after the war, another um, famine hit Ukraine. Um, and, uh, and for many people, they, they returned to their towns uh, and, and villages uh, only to discover that uh, many of the fathers, brothers, friends, husbands uh, who had been sent off to war would not return. Uh, this was true for um, for many members of my family. Um, and the other thing that happened was that there was uh, suddenly a, a huge demographic shift in, in many of um, of the towns. In Tulchin, as I mentioned, Jews had once constituted nearly half of the population. Uh, and now they were vastly outnumbered by Ukrainians. Instead of living in their own enclave, now they lived uh, amongst ethnic Ukrainians, um, you know, in, in, in their neighborhoods. Um, and, and what happened is that uh, many survivors, um, you know, they, they began to grow self-conscious about their Jewish identities and their speech. Uh, some chose to speak Yiddish only in private. Um, some renounced their names. Uh, I, I noticed an interesting trend in my own family in that pretty much after this generation, it, there was a very much an effort to give Russian uh, names to, 
to children. Um, and, uh, and, and the other thing that happened was often they were met by, um, and I should say more broadly in, uh, in the Soviet Union, survivors were met by, um, by people who didn't necessarily believe that they had, in fact, um, survived some of these horrific conditions and atrocities. Uh, there was a belief that all Jews had, had lived out the war uh, you know, on the so-called uh, uh, Tashkent Front. Uh, th th there was not a belief that, um, uh, that Jewish men or, and women had fought in the Red Army. And so they had to, to kind of live with, uh, with these accusations as well. Um, in some ways, my family was also lucky because many people returned home uh, to find that their houses were occupied and there was very little uh, they could do about it uh, due to a law that basically uh, revoked their rights after a certain number of uh, a certain period of time in which they were absent. Um, and then also um, in, in the years to come, there were um, there were other reminders uh, of, of what happened in the war, even after they uh, after their survival and after they had gotten back on their feet. In, in my grandfather's case, there was a run in with uh, a local Ukrainian uh, camp guard. Uh, who had apparently, like many others, served out um, uh, a shortened uh, sentence, uh, probably a labor sentence, uh, and was was uh, was able to return to um, the, the very town in which he had had served as basically a camp guard. And so this this was quite common. People who were accused of being collaborators, in many cases, walking freely, and and um, and their survivors having to to sort of adjust to to this. Uh, reality after um, a number of years. Um, and then as far as I think, um, you know, living with, with, you know, in the shadow of, of the Holocaust, I think sometimes there's um, often an assumption that uh, in the Soviet Union, there was a, a single uh, consistent policy, uh, um, I think, um, dictating uh, what could be said and not said, written and, and not written, uh, movies that could be made and not made. Um, and it turns out that this wasn't necessarily the case, and it certainly depended on the specific period um, that you're, you're talking about. Um, but I think what was definitely true was that the Holocaust was subsumed into a larger war narrative. Um, it was um, subsumed by the larger suffering of all Soviet citizens and and certainly there was no way for Soviet Jews to be able to begin to communicate their stories to the outside world until really, uh, you know, probably the late 80s or so. Um, and, and I'll also say that, you know, even for the average person who's not writing literature or, or producing films, uh, people eking out livings in the periphery of the Soviet Union, far from uh, any major city, uh, you know, I don't think there was a concern necessarily that the, the KGB would suddenly come knocking on your door if... Um, if you happen to, uh, you know, talk about the Holocaust to somebody or what had happened to you. Um, but there was definitely a societal taboo around um, discussing the specificity of the Jewish wartime experience. It's just not something that, um, as it, you know, as it was told to me, not something that you would necessarily share outside of your circle. Uh, it, you know, it could be the grounds for getting fired, for, for getting kicked out of university. Um, and... Um, but as, even in spite of this, there were there were a number of um, of survivors whose testimony I, I listened to uh, and who I interviewed uh, that actually fought against, in some ways, this kind of veil of silence. Uh, many of them uh, basically came of age and helped uh, preserve, in many cases, uh, this, this, the, um, the the mass graves where their their um, 
where the relatives now were. Uh, they uh, erected memorials um, and, and, they, and they appealed to local Soviet authorities for the right to do this. Uh, and in, in, in this way, in the ways that they could, they kept the memory alive. But I would say that the overall, the lack of validation, uh, quite quite frankly, uh, had a way of re-traumatizing the people who, whose stories I, I heard. Um, one of the most obvious ways was that many of the sites that were camps and ghettos were, were not marked as such until very late in the Soviet period. Uh, the camp that my grandfather had survived uh, did not even have a plaque identifying the fact that it had been a death camp until 1989. Um, and, and this this was... Um, uh, you know, this 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 was uh, again a little bit traumatic for certain people. I, one of the one of the people whose stories I tell, uh, he was he was a, a child survivor who was about twelve years old um, at the end of the war, and uh, he had no memory of of this place uh, be, because of the poor health that he was in. And you know, many years later, uh, while living in Kiev, he decided to. Uh, take his son uh, basically on a kind of a vacation as kind of a bonding moment after his his son was um, done with his first year at university. And he unknowingly booked a trip to the very village where the camp was located because the camp itself had been transformed into a health resort after the war. It had, of course, been, uh, uh, you know, uh, renovated, uh, fixed up. And so there was there was no trace of what happened. And, um, you know, during this vacation, the the survivor... Uh, quickly realized where he was as a boy, and it was it was uh, it was deeply deeply um, troubling to him. Um, and I think for my grandfather, I think even in the United States, when when he was telling this story, you know, many many decades after what had happened to him, the the thing that didn't necessarily bother him at that point, um, you know, he he would tell me he had kind of I think he had come to terms with what happened, but what what I think bothered him was that. Um, he didn't necessarily get the validation for, for some of the things that he did because uh, when he, for, for example, tried to reach out to a few of the folks that he saved um, and there's some of their, their sons and daughters, they, they, they simply had not been told because, you know, this was not necessarily, you know, the kind of thing that you would share with, with one's family. So I think, I think in, in his, um, in, in his last few years, I think this was what, what really troubled him most of all. Um, and, and so I think this, this veil of silence it definitely had an impact um, many years uh, after uh, the war had ended. I now want to kind of shift things towards your parents and towards your own experience. Scholar Marianne Hirsch has done a lot of work on the topic of post-memory. That is how Holocaust-related trauma impacts the next generations. I think your book offers a really stark glimpse into the way that your grandparents' experiences and the silences around them have shaped your parents and your understandings of self, of Jewishness, of Soviet Jewishness. I was wondering if you might be willing to share a little bit about this with listeners today. Well, you know, what I've come to understand, I think, while digging into some of this family history and speaking to my grandparents and others about these difficult periods in their lives is that I think certainly the events of the war defined the arc of their lives uh, and both directly and indirectly shaped their identities. Um, you know, but, but I think their, their, their identities as, as uh, you know, Soviet Jews 
and Jews more broadly uh, was probably shaped even well before uh, the Holocaust. And I thought, um, again, digging into some of this history was incredibly informative in that respect. And for me, helped answer a number of questions about my own family and, and why things were the way they were and, and, and how our own identities differed from uh, you know, those in the American Jewish community. I think, uh, you know, in the 1960s, you know, at the beginning of the, the, the Soviet um, Jewry movement that, that uh, you know, sought to help allow um, Soviet Jews to, to basically, you know, emigrate to the West, uh, which, which would culminate in just that um, 20 years later into Israel as well. Uh, I, I think there was this image of uh, Soviet Jews as, uh, you know, part of the, this kind of intelligentsia, uh, people who were very much interested in reclaiming their Jewish past, who were trying to to re to relearn some of the cultural religious practices, and I think that the people who actually came to the United States again, you know, twenty, thirty years later, uh, were not quite what uh, what was maybe expected uh, by the people who had kind of fought so hard um, to give us the right to to come to this country as um, Jewish refugees, and uh, for me, I. You know, I, I, my, I myself had a hard time reconciling why it was that my family approached our Jewish identity so differently than some of my Jewish American friends while growing up. I, I felt that they were more at ease with their identities. They seemed to know so much more than me uh, about cultural, religious practices, uh, things that were done and not done. Um, and uh, I think digging into this, into some of this history, uh, dating back to the, 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 the um, years before the, the Russian Revolution, the, the, um, the difficult years of the, the Soviet Union uh, pre-war and the attempts to really you know, eradicate religion, um, and of course the difficult periods um, that followed the war as well. I think these were all incredibly um, in, instructive as far as you know, how I now view my identity, how it was forged, and how I, I think I'll probably approach the future with my own family. Maxine, we've taken up quite a bit of your time today. I want to wrap up our interview with my traditional closing question on New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? I think uh, mainly now I, I, uh, I, I want to spend some time recovering from uh, the writing and research process um, and all the work that went into that. Uh, you know, for me, this was mostly done uh, between the hours of 9 p.m. and 1 a.m., so I'm definitely... Um, my immediate plans are to uh, catch up on some sleep. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think there is certainly a lot to be explored uh, on the topics, uh, you know, we chatted about today. And I think it's possible, um, you know, at a later point that I'll, I'll want to dig in again. But for now, I, I think I'm just going to enjoy some time with family and, and some books that I've been meaning to read and, and movies and things like that. But, but maybe, yes, I think um, at a later date, I think maybe... Uh, inspiration will strike and I'll maybe wade into this material because again, I think there, there is so much more uh, to do and learn. Amazing. Um, I, for one, hope you do wade back into it because I really enjoyed reading this book. I want to thank you personally for joining us here on New Books in Jewish Studies today, Maxine. Thank you so much. This has been great. And for the listeners out there, if today's discussion piqued your interest, you can pick up a copy of Maxim Goldenstein's So They Remember, A Jewish Family's Story of Surviving the Holocaust in Soviet Ukraine, directly from University of Oklahoma Press, or you can order it from your local bookstore. <laughs>